Well, welcome. Um, thanks for being flexible and, and uh, sitting around tables tonight. We have our prime timers <clears throat> uh, lunch tomorrow, and so it's helpful for our facilities team to not have to try to set up at like six in the morning. So um, thanks for your flexibility on that. Uh, two quick things. One is um, next week, talk a little bit about our schedule. Next week is our last week for the semester. And last week in this Revelation series that Pastor John will be wrapping up for us. Um, if you're if you're going to miss it, uh, we were going to hand these out next week. This is a magnet. You, you can put up somewhere. But this is going to be covering the content of next week. So if you're going to miss it, grab one of these. They're on the back um, by the communion tables. So on, on your way, I'll grab one of those. And we'll also have them available next week as well. Uh, if you didn't pick up communion, I would encourage you to uh, go grab that because Pastor John will be leading us through communion at the end of uh, the night. And then um, we're gonna be picking back up January 10th. Uh, January 10th, we're gonna be starting and um, I'm gonna be launching into a series called uh, The World Religions in Seven Sentences. And so we're gonna be going through uh, seven key uh, world religions, um, Islam, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, I think. I think I have that seven. Uh, hopefully I didn't miss any. But anyway, so each week we'll be walking through one of, one of those. So uh, mark your calendars January 10th for that. And uh, if you'd please welcome Pastor John as he uh, comes to do our second to last teaching on Revelation. Thanks, Pastor John. <laughs> Thanks, friend. I don't know about you guys, but I think uh, January 10th is too far out. So if you want to lobby him afterwards and say, can you move that up like a month? Go ahead. I'm in your, in your club. I'm going to say something tonight that you're going to disagree with. And it might be because I'm wrong. And it might be because you're wrong. And it might be because we're both wrong. And I'm good with that. If you're not good with that, this is going to be frustrating for you. But I'm hoping that you can be open to being good with that. So let's explore. Uh, fortunately, with these studies being recorded, you can always go back and, and not only catch up on something that you might have missed, but also, hey, there's a lot that we had to cover. I, I want to go back over that. That's, that's tonight. We got a lot to cover with tonight's content. Revelation 1-3, blessed are those who hear. Amen. God, we need your help to be able to understand this good gift that you have given us. We need you, God. Amen. Tonight, it all starts with occasion three of four with, with John being carried away in the spirit. Chapter 17, verse three, and he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now we've covered this a couple of times at this point that there are different points in John's great revelation that he gets carried away in the spirit. It's like this spiritual overpowering quality control. They're like four signposts of this letter. First, at the beginning of the letter. Then, when John found himself before the throne. Then here, preceding the fall of Babylon. And then finally, at the coming of the bride of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem. 
Revelation shows the frantic and desperate enemy exhausting all stores it has of desperation and intoxication and temptation and force that the enemy holds. And the lure and the intoxication and the deception of the enemy's ways are really effective. It lures souls away from their source, their creator, their beloved. And then at the start of chapter 17, John sees the prostitute. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Now, if you're wondering where this comes from, this comes from some seriously obscene imagery that's found in Nahum and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And we're not going to cover that tonight, one, for the sake of time, and two, because it'd kind of just be a shock factor thing. But if you're allowed to buy a ticket to an R-rated movie, then you are free to go back into Nahum, Isaiah, and Jeremiah and kind of see what the nature of the prostitute is all about. But the power of the prostitute is, of course, in the nature of seduction, idolatry, and drunkenness. She is drunk from gorging herself on the blood of the martyrs. Just like we asked previously in a previous week's study, well, why the image of a dragon? Here, I want us to ask, well, why the image of a prostitute? God wants us to see what misplaced allegiance and worship feels like to him. He says, my relationship with my people is like a beloved, faithful marriage. The beloved is my bride and the prostitute, one who lures her away and lies to incite unfaithfulness is a lustful, deceiving, destructive temptation and desecration of the good thing that we have. Leviticus 17.7, God says, my people must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute or whore themselves. You hear that language, you see that imagery. There's emotion behind this. A prostitute by nature offers a fleeting pleasure of the world, distorted and perverted a part of the fulfilling pleasure that God intends within a marriage. And and the prostitute will offer her pleasure to anyone who will pay for it. And boy, do people pay for it. The prostitute represents the great city Babylon and then all Babylon-like centers of earthly power. So Tyre, Persia, Rome, and so on. There's a, a rich plethora of Old Testament images and songs of judgment that all feel very aggressive when we see God's judgment being poured out upon these nations that lure his people away. But it finds its culmination right here in Revelation where God shows us this is what happens. This is what it feels like when my people are lured away by the intoxication and the power and the temptation of the world. And after being defeated, this is how the nation's self-made powers and pleasures looks like in God's eyes, like a prostitute. But this chapter actually ends with a surprising twist. After being defeated by the lamb, starting in verse 16, the destructive 
and desperate beast turns on the prostitute and will destroy her. Why? Well, just like we said last week and we've covered in other weeks, the enemy's destruction is ultimately self-destruction. What does a clearly defeated enemy do? There's surrender and then there's taking anyone and everyone he can down with him. Rivalries among evil is what we see here in Revelation. You simply don't want to be a part of the losing side. It's cutthroat. Overcome by the forces of the kingdom, given away to their own self-destruction. Chapter 17, verse 17 tells us that God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over their royal authority to the beast until God's words are fulfilled given over to their eternal condition of enmity, the enemy will forever be destructive in nature. Doesn't know any other way. If he fails to have power to overcome the kingdom, then like we talked about last week, God simply gives them away over to itself, to destruction of its own people. This is why we call this week the futility and the fall of rejectors. Chapter 18, this chapter is actually a unique mix of, of celebration and lament, depending on which side people choose to be on. Babylon, Tyre, Edom, and now Rome is the newest version of this old, repeated, feudal pattern. Whether people worship at the reality of Babylon's fall or wail depends on which side they have aligned their hearts to. Humanity in rebellion against God, a part of the human condition throughout all of history is given away to its chosen destiny. Practically, one of the things that chapter 18 can show us in Revelation is the lure of the wealth of the world. Now, hopefully you've heard this when the church and people of the church get from the Bible our understanding on wealth. It's not that economics and employment and wealth in and of itself is bad. It's that the world, the beast, the prostitute, just like it does with all kinds of pleasures, takes the good things that God has given us and allowed us to have in our lives and, and perverts it and warps it so it becomes an idol. And we feel we need it and we feel we need to rely on it. And many of us can look at the world around us and say, yeah, money has its clenches on people's lives. They need it. They rely on it. When they have it, they are satisfied. When they don't have it, they are not satisfied. God's supposed to fill that role in our lives. This is why scripture says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's, it's that bonding that we give to something else, anything else apart from God. Chapter 19, I know we're moving at a really quick pace. We got a long way to go tonight. <laughs> While people of the world, chapter 19, people of the world lamented of the fall of the human-based endeavors of chapter 18 in Babylon, the choir of heaven erupts in chapter 19 over the downfall of the blasphemous opposition. And we see a word here that's fascinating, hallelujah. 
I want you to guess how many times this word appears in Revelation. Or sorry, appears in the New Testament. Just in Revelation. And also in Psalms. It's this fascinating note. Hallelujah, all praise to Yahweh. Proclaimed four times here in this chapter and then also in the Psalms. But it's this fascinating note. That word, that term is found in the Psalms and then here in this chapter in Revelation. So since we got to this chapter so quickly, I want to slow down a bit and I want us to, to focus on the fact that, that the choir of heaven is celebrating right now upon the downfall of the enemies of God. Now that may not be as hard as divine violence, this concept that we kind of wrestled with a little bit last week, but it's still this idea that God is celebrated not just in the feel-good, jolly times. God has proven over and over and over throughout scripture and throughout the history of the world that he is proven holy and righteous in his vindication, in his judgment, in his justice and even vengeance. And like last week, it has to do with the ways that the Lord finds people and societies right where they're at, in the positions they have placed themselves. As, as a little bit of a side note, but one of the most relevant questions you and I have probably received in our lives, this is scratching the surface on the question of, well, how could a good God send people to hell? Listen, every single person that was destined, that is destined for hell, is headed that way because of our own choices. It's God that made a way out of that. In perfect love and common grace, God chooses to allow all people a choice. And it is a very real choice. It's not merely the appearance of a choice or a choice with superimposed irresistibility behind it. It's a very real choice that God allows all souls. And when people give themselves away to anything apart from devotion to Yahweh himself, they become beast-like. That's what sin does. It corrupts like a cancer. This is why scripture is constantly pleading and pleading and pleading, take this seriously, don't manage your sin. Don't placate your sin. Get rid of it like a cancer. Take sin seriously. It desires to have you, and not in a good way. We're going to talk more about that next week. The more you feed that cancerous nature, the stronger it'll grow. The more you downplay it, think it'll just go away someday, or it's not really that bad, the more it festers. And grows. And over and over and over, God tells us that leads to death. It leads to a separation from the source of life and goodness and victory. And on the biggest scale of things, which is what Revelation invites us into, God will ultimately stand perfect and holy and righteous while all apart from him will fall. The Lord and the ways of the kingdom forever endure when confronted with opposition. It's, it's like this futile little threat of his own creation trying to come up against him. How, how might his own creation ever think that it could take out or threaten their creator? 
When we see both the futility of our own enmity and the great patience and the grace of the Lord, even while we were still enemies, it is great cause for joy and celebration. The saints and the angels of the choir of heaven, they, they see things at that level and they rightly rejoice in the proven superiority of their king. And it's not just superiority. God is great. God is holy. God is righteous. It is also wondrous love. I want to turn to verse 6 of chapter 19. The marriage supper of the lamb. Just like we asked why the image of a prostitute, we should still be asking why the image of a marriage supper? Why marriage? Revelation chapter 19, verses six through 10. Well, marriage is much more than, than friendship. It's more than affection. It's more than devotion. Marriage is a sacred metaphor for the unparalleled exclusive relationship. In this case, even between a unfaithful bride and a faithful groom. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, talking about the marriage of Christ and his church. And at this point in Revelation, when the prostitute has been fully dealt with, the bride shows herself ready in endurance and faithfulness. And John's eyes, as he captures this, are wide with amazement and wonder. He is so impressed. And he also records for the people of the seven churches to read that he actually completely forgets himself again. He gets carried away in awe for the second time here in chapter 19, verse 9 of chapter 19. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then John says about himself, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. I love this. I find it comedy in Revelation that John gets so carried away. But it's a reminder, one, don't Worship the experience. Worship the truth. We can do this. We've talked about this before in the study. We can do this in, in spiritual settings even where we get so carried away by the music or the setting or the messenger that that becomes the focus and the object of our adoration and our allegiance and not God. It even happens here with John. It's this caution. It's this warning. Worship Allegiance, devotion, it's all reserved for God. Don't place it in anything else. And I love it that it's, it's the message that you're really gonna wanna be here at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're really gonna wanna endure people of the seven churches to be at this marriage supper. You are invited. You're the bride. But just like we don't celebrate the microphone, we celebrate the singer or the voice, we don't celebrate experiences or messengers. Worship God. And then in, in chapter 19, Jesus appears. 
This is awesome. Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the enemies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, the armies, not the enemies, that would totally change this, sorry. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. See, I told you I'd say something that you disagree with. There, there, we got it out of the way. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I dare you to take that passage and just allow it to soak over your next week. One of the things that stands out to me, a name written that no one knows but himself. And it's not that, that it's a secret, it's that the divine nature of Jesus can never be exhausted. It's this mystery, it's this activity, it's this invitation that the people of God get for all of eternity to lean more into the divine nature of Jesus. Heaven will not be boring. We will never get to the end of who he is and what it means that he is Lord. Jesus comes forth here as the word of God riding on a white horse as a conqueror over evil for all time. You might have some fun kind of comparing Jesus's entry here in Revelation 19 with his entry into Jerusalem in Mark 11. Just kind of a, a fun juxtaposition or a comparison there. We've said it for weeks. The enemy can resist all you want, even for all of eternity, but he who created all things and reigns over all things cannot be threatened. Do you think the people of the seven churches needed that reminder? Do you think you need that reminder? But the great deceiver, Satan, is delusional, utterly delusional. Do you remember the time that Satan actually thought he could sit Jesus down and tempt him to come over to his side? <laughs> In light of Revelation, that seems so ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet our enemy is so utterly delusional and his delusions are tragic because it leads people astray. So this is it. This cancer is gonna be dealt with once and for all of time. Here comes the final battle. It's actually told twice here. Once in Revelation 19 verses 19 through 21. And then also again in chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. And right in the middle is sandwiched this section that focuses on, well, what does this mean for those who have been conquered by the enemy, by being slain? The final battle 
with that in the middle. The blood to be shed has already been shed in this battle. Jesus wears it upon his robe, a robe dipped in blood that he wears as he rides the white horse. So if Armageddon isn't going to be a bloodbath, then what's with the imagery at the end of chapter 19 and verse 21, where it talks about those slain by the sword and the birds eating their flesh? Well, it sounds pretty violent. It sounds pretty battlefield-like to me. But this is where we need to remember that apocalyptic literature, in order for the scenes of Revelation to actually really play themselves out, it doesn't mean they have to happen literally. Just like the lamb opening the scroll doesn't necessarily involve hooves and parchment. This gruesome scene at the end of chapter 19 calls all the way back to language from Ezekiel with the battle of Gog and God that we talked about a little bit last week. In advance of the battle in Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, call the birds and the wild animals to prepare for a meal of the defeated enemy. It's battlefield language. God is going to utterly destroy this enemy. Battlefield language. If, if you're not familiar with battlefield language, a, a term like give them hell might be surprising to you. But it's, it's intended to be intense. It's intended to be used to describe battlefield language in this great victory, this imminent victory of God over his enemies. Armageddon is this definitive proclamation of justice, holding accountable those who have utterly rejected God. The ways that they have participated in destroying his good creation. Like Gog, like Pharaoh, their destructive nature becomes their own destiny. All right, chapter 20. Some of you are really excited that we're here. And others of you have no idea what it means that we're diving into Revelation chapter 20, but you're here, so you might as well buckle in, settle in. I want us to focus on this a bit because this is eschatology. This is us dealing with the study of end times, and, and I want to share a little bit of at least how this has made sense to me. With that, across from everything that we've covered so far in Revelation, it has seemed like by John calling things signs and wonders, and I saw something like this, it seems like things have been primarily representative, primarily symbolic, right? That key controls, controls the idea here that we're supposed to latch on to. We shouldn't get to this point, Revelation chapter 20, and all of a sudden switch that, that symbolism switch off. This is still apocalyptic nature. In, in chapter 20, verses one through six, the great dragon is bound by an angel who appears having the key to the abyss. That key controls all entrance and exit to the abyss. And so as a key to understand how this at least presently makes sense to me, I don't think there's any consistency in, in getting to this point in Revelation, like I said, all of a sudden switching the symbolism switch off and making this all primarily literal or sequential. 
It's not that nothing is literal or real. It's that in the midst of a work that is primarily representative in nature, unless it tells us otherwise, I think we need to continue to take it on its terms, continue seeing things with interpretive eyes. And I have no problem saying it over and over and over throughout this study. Really smart people disagree with me. And I'm good with that. They may very well be right. I'm trying to understand this to the best of my ability, and I hope you are too. I'm a work in progress. So let's return to surveying chapter 20, the bottomless pit, the abyss. This is the binding, the control of Satan. God's divine restriction that the deceptions of the enemy are not allowed to to fully run their course in the world. Not yet. And then chapter 20 says, after that, he must be released for a while. (laughs) And if you're like me, you get to that verse in Revelation, you're going, what? Why? Keep him bound. But this goes back to what we said last week. Do you remember the sixth bowl? Do you remember the sixth bowl of wrath being poured out? How God actually dried up the rivers, allowing the enemy to have its way. And that reminded us of what God did back in the Exodus with Pharaoh. Eventually, that kind of enmity gets to a point where God removes all restraints. Removes all restraints and allows the enemy to seek its own total ruin. Right after that, in Revelation, John sees the faithful victims of the enemy's hatred. Those that could not be enticed by the enemy. And it costs them. Dearly, the martyrs for the faith. Here they are rewarded and highly celebrated. These are great, faithful, honorable people. And here they have their vindication. Very specifically, very specially, the kingdom honors its martyrs. Not in a solemn way, in an exuberant way. I want us to remember this. This part stuck out to me as I was driving here tonight. I want us to remember that while the world may look at martyrs' stories as tragic, heaven sees it as triumphant. They proved their testimony even unto death. And then Revelation says, and after it. They're the front lines. They're the special forces showing the enemy, you threw the worst you could at us. And just like Jesus still stood after the cross on Good Friday, in his resurrection, here we stand. This is how we conquer, by the word of the testimony. Let me say it again. While the world will view martyrs' stories like they're tragic, heaven sees them as triumphant. Chapter 20 In the latter part of verse four, they play a key role in what's called the end times, the eschatology. Let's read that. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So right here, this is why uh, tonight here, we're only about halfway through, uh, eschatology, the study of end times what we're encountering there with with the millennium and the ordering of things. Is this a literal sequence of events that that we're supposed to take from those verses? Or is it Jesus's future return presented from different angles? Eschatology particularly focuses in on this part of chapter 20. It zooms in and asks, how are we to understand the timeline and the sequence of events here? And serious entrenchment develops right here. Maybe even in this room. Maybe you you need me to be in one camp or another in order to actually be willing to listen. And like it too often does, eschatological entrenchment can lead to people throwing lobs to people on any other side, any other camp that they're on and say, those people don't actually honor the Bible. They're unthinking idiots. That is getting caught in the weeds, people. That's something we said the very first night, this study we're not going to do. There may be some of you going, well, wait, all that talk about eschatological camps and where different people get entrenched, that just primarily has to do with these verses right here in this chapter? Yeah. Not, and you can see why refusing to get caught in the weeds like this is probably wise. It doesn't mean eschatology isn't important. It just means that we need to take it the way John, the author, not me, and ultimately Jesus intends it, all in the scope that Jesus is king. He is conqueror. God will be glorified and a call for his church to endure. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I've got another book recommendation for you. (laughs) Some of you may be going now. (laughs) Seems like an awkward time for a book recommendation. Um, It's a book called Across the Spectrum. It's, it's a great book that over the years has, has dealt with all kinds of sides and perspectives of, of theological debate with different understandings of that, different responses to critiques and biblical basis that each side kind of has for their argument. In other words, it's a great resource for those of us that really do want to know what do people in another camp think on this issue? What is, what is the most thought through version of that side? Because too often we can get found in a camp on an issue and it's not just eschatology, it's, it's many other theological issues. We can get caught in a camp and we can just think, I don't even understand how those people on the other side crack their Bibles. This book helps me go, hey, someone has thought through it. Maybe I even disagree with their interpretation there but at least I can sit there and go, what's the best version of their understanding? It could be a great resource for you. Seeing other viewpoints in their best light, not so that you can just be agreeable, but so that you can mine truth deeper. 
That's what we're invited to here, across the spectrum. That's that book's name. So what are these eschatological perspectives to, to understanding chapter 20? What are the main camps of eschatology? First is the premillennial view, is that those res- resurrected believers will assist Christ's thousand-year reign as king over the earth. Premillennial is see a literal thousand-year peace, reign of peace that is coming in the future that will not begin until Jesus physically returns and takes his church out of the world. That's an act called the rapture. That's something we're going to talk about in a bit. Reading Revelation 20 is reading a clear succession of events for the premillennial view. Secondly, the amillennial view. It's that deceased believers now and during the thousand years, marking the time between Pentecost and Jesus' second coming, are reigning with Christ in this period now in heaven, from heaven. And once the symbols in chapter 20, just like the rest of the book, are recognized for what they are, eschatology is seen as a consistent depiction of the end times, as one multifaceted interconnected event, including Jesus' return, his victory, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. And then the post-millennial view sees all this as a future triumph of Christianity in the world. Jesus will judge mankind after he reigns on earth through his church for a millennium. The culmination of this age will be the successful Christianization of the whole world before we can expect Jesus to return physically and be a catech- bring a cataclysmic end to usher in the eternal never-ending age. Now, if your head's hurting from kind of just summarizing all that, here's an interesting point that I don't want anybody in this room or watching online to miss. All three camps agree that Jesus's, in his, Jesus in his return will deal with evil forever and usher in a never-ending kingdom. All three agree in the end who's going to be victorious and what it will mean for all people. And in case your brain hasn't burst just yet, there's, there's two more pieces that I think is really important and necessary while we're talking about this based on this content. It's the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. That's why I said at the beginning, you may want to engage this content maybe a second time, kind of recover all that we're talking about. It's kind of exhausting even to teach. (laughs) We're not exploring these things, the resurrection of the dead and the rapture to risk getting lost in the weeds, but to try to have been faithful to what the implications of eschatology are, what it involves. It's a key part to our enduring hope as people of the faith. So let's, let's just try to explore it a little bit. Over the next handful of minutes, we're going to take a couple of detours outside of Revelation to encounter these pieces. Like a lot of what we've encountered in Revelation, sometimes you need to go outside of Revelation in order to understand what's inside it, what Revelation is talking about. Of course, this is going to be nowhere near an exhaustive t- detour, It's more like whetting your appetite on these two issues, the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. Um, If you're a note taker, 
You're probably exhausted, by the way. You can write this. The resurrection of the body, or the resurrection of the dead, you can pick which one you want. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. I know that's a lot. I'll repeat it. Resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is a passage tonight we're going to talk about. And then I would really encourage you, if you're someone looking for homework or more to dive into with a group or someone else, go into that passage a little bit further. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, Paul explores how the resurrected bodies of the saints will participate in the resurrection of the dead. And by the way, in the Gospels, the resurrection of the dead was not foreign to the people in which Jesus was encountering and ministering. At the death of her, her father Lazarus, Martha knew, accepted, and held fast to the resurrection on the last day, something Jesus also taught about numerous times. Paul says that we will be raised bodily into new real, and he calls them imperishable and incorruptible bodies. The resurrection of the body for the Christian is not a magic trick. It will be the validation of real embodied lives. Our bodies are not merely flesh. This is why sometimes, even at Christian funerals, Pastor Brent was talking about this out at Windsor a couple of weekends ago. Even at funerals, you might hear someone flippantly say or unintentionally say, the body is just a shell. No, it's not. They are a critical part of our lived existence. So in a way, perhaps this resurrection is like an entirely new grafted life. It takes what had happened, what had been lived out physically and in a real way and was cut off, severed. And it's like it grafts it to a new source. If you're familiar with botany, you may know, understand the idea of grafting something, even something that has been completely severed from its original sort of life, source of life, completely cut off, can actually be grafted and replaced and, and brought back to life with a new life source, but it's a different kind of life than the life that it had before. And I know that's a metaphor, and like every metaphor, it's going to kind of break down. But this idea of grafting the life that we are removed from to an entirely new kind of life, maybe there's something to that image. Our time next week is going to explore some major components of that new kind of life, that new reality. So with at least this concept of the resurrection of the dead, that, that our physical lived existence matters and will be perfected into imperishable, incorruptible existence. Let's hold on to that, the resurrection of the body, a major hope of the Christian faith in one hand. And now I want us to turn to the rapture. <laughs> Had to just say it like that. It's fun. Some of you are getting scared at that. Some of you are really excited. The term rapture, just like the term Trinity is not found in our Bibles. But it needs to be considered. It needs to be engaged. Anyone that engages on this, the rapture, without having some sense of, of surpassing mystery to it, 
like I can understand it fully and completely, is probably getting lost in the weeds. With this, the rapture, the removing of God's people from this existence into a whole renewed life, there's mystery to that that we can't. God has not intended on revealing the fullness of that to us, but he does give us glimpses. That's why we can look and not be ashamed to look at that idea, but not presume that we fully understand it. Like I said, just like the Trinity, the term rapture is not a word that we find in the Bible. It's a term that consolidates developments that we encounter elsewhere. Rapture means to be taken up or more aggressively, how, how would you say that? Snatched. <laughs> which is understandably where people get this association in their minds with rapture as like a snatching. Well, that in some Christian fiction books and, and movies you might've seen. For the premillennial, the rapture or the taking up of the saints will take place before all the tribula tribulation happens. Jesus will snatch up his saints, protecting them and ensuring that they do not have to endure the tribulation. And you know what? I understand why it seems like that's what God would do. Protect his bride, right? Maybe. These people are called pre-tribs. Think left behind books and movies. For the post-millennial, the rapture will take place after the tribulation. Church, you're going to have to endure the great tribulation so that people might repent. And this is understandable. This one seems to make sense because how many times in the Bible does God not promise to remove us from suffering, but says, you're blessed because of it. You're going to have to endure it. So, okay, that one could make sense too. These people are called post Tribs. The rapture happens after the tribulation. Now the amillennial. And you know what? You've gotten this far in this study, and I don't think I'd be doing it justice if I didn't speak a little more on this view. And here's why. We've come this far. Can you believe we're almost through 20 chapters of the 22 in Revelation? And I'd probably be cheating if I didn't share at least an explanation of how does this right now make sense to me? So I'm gonna do that and I may very well be wrong. I know there's mystery over all this, parts that I'm probably overemphasizing or underemphasizing, but I'm a theological work in progress. So, so let's at least try to explore this a little bit more as how this is in development with me. I believe this taken up, joined with the Lord resurrection moment, happens in line with the last day. At Jesus' second coming, the rapture or the taking up of the saints happens in the same movement as the resurrection of the dead, swept up with Jesus in the great resurrection, leaving corruption and despair behind, and by extension, all who have refused to participate in the kingdom. Now, a question for the person that holds that view, the amillennial view is, well, how do you deal with Jesus's brief mention of the rapture in Matthew chapter 24, verse 40? Maybe you're familiar with this, uh, where Jesus says, one will be left behind in the field and the other taken up or taken. 
Well, let's go back to that verse for context uh, of that verse. Check out the few verses prior. Jesus was in the midst of a teaching connecting the son of man. Do you remember who that was? The cloud rider, the one that comes in judgment with the flood. And in verse 38, Jesus continues, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So he's comparing all this with Noah and the ark. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they, the other people, were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken away and the other left. So it seems to me in the whole context of these verses that to be taken away in the spirit is synonymous to be swept away by the flood. It's the one that stands that enters the kingdom that will stand on the last day. Paul taught some early Christians about this who had a very valid concern about the resurrection in their own lives. If you're a note-taking person, uh, you can write down rapture, 1 Thessalonians, or just 1 Thess, 4, 13 through 18. This one we will actually have on the screens as well, I believe. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Now, the people that Paul was talking about here, or talking to here, they had an eschatological concern of their own. Jesus has passed, he has resurrected, and they believed that his return was not only imminent, but was going to occur within their own lifetime. And they thought they had a problem because they have also, in that period of time between when Jesus ascended and when he hasn't returned yet, they've seen people die. Loved ones die. And they had this concern, but are they going to miss out on the greatness of Jesus's return? Are the dead going to miss out? And Paul responds in this letter. 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have, have died, that you may not grieve as others who, do not, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Not only have your loved ones not missed out on the greatness of the return of Jesus that is to come, they've got front row seats. They'll be first. The dead will rise first and then those who are alive will join them. The dead have already been changed. They have been separated from this life. They are with God. 
We who are alive will still need to be changed and caught up with him, secure with him. Our court-like judgment secure in him. And we will always be with him. We're coming in for a landing now, so, so nudge the person next to you. Make sure they're, they're awake for me. The point of all of Revelation The point of all of Revelation and these particular verses of chapter 20 in particular does not intend on leaving you and I as predictive geniuses. I know how it's all going to play out. It intends to leave all of us prepared and enduring and worshipful. As Paul says, encourage one another with these words including the final judgment before the great white throne. Last five verses of chapter 20 and last few minutes in this week's teaching. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then... Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, eternally quarantined, never again able to threaten or corrupt God's good creation, dealt with forever. Can you imagine all of creation, all motives have been purified, nothing corrupt exists or can ever escape or threaten God's good people or his purposes ever again. Can you imagine? And when I stop and I try to picture that, you know what thought comes next? Let's just hope we don't screw it up again like we did the first time. In fact, that's, that's a great question. How do we know? How do we know that that having this new opportunity in paradise with all corruption and deceit removed, how do we know we're not going to blow it again? That's what we're going to deal with next week. That's what the promise of our eternal security allows us to explore. You're going to love how this ends. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we need your help to understand these great, vast things. Father in heaven, your purposes in heaven and upon earth are sure and unthreatened. Your people need to see how your victory is assured and the promise that we have of the full coming resurrection, a full restoration imperishable and incorruptible, the renewed heavens and earth with our bodies raised and perfected forever. 
We look forward to studying that more next week. We look forward to that reality soon to come. And in light of all this, God, help this promise keep us from temptation and deception and lures of the enemy. For yours is the everlasting kingdom. Before we end, I'd love it if you would take the communion elements and stand with me if you're able. Sometimes I just want to take moments and and think about when Jesus took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He didn't mean this is a shell. This doesn't matter. This this body that I have right now, yeah, they're going to torture it and kill it, but it doesn't really matter. No, remember, he, he still showed the disciples the wound in his side. It, it really happened to him. His body was not a magic trick. It was God incarnate for us, broken for us, so that we might enter into this eternal promise. Let's take that in celebration. And the only blood shed in Armageddon was the blood already on the dipped robe. Jesus himself saying, this is all the blood that needs to be shed. My people conquer by this truth, the word of their testimony, the truth of the salvation that we have in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Let's celebrate that. God, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this time. Allow this to soak in our souls well and explore the great promise that we have soon to come. Amen. Love you guys. Hope to see you next week. If you're not going to be here, make sure to grab one of those magnets on the way out.